Well, good morning. And uh, aren't we delighting in the warming temperatures here in Northwest Indiana? I think all of our spirits must be, uh, 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 I don't know, happier. Mine certainly are versus the uh, wretched month of February that we've had. How nice it is uh, this morning and uh, great to be in God's uh, uh, place of worship here with you. I, uh, some of you here in Crown Point might be wiping sleep out of your eyes having stayed up to watch the girls win the state championship. Wasn't that exciting? When something only happens once every 35 years, you probably should celebrate it. So uh, we were uh, also watching that and uh, celebrating with that. Of course, now I'm gonna greet our, our uh, campuses and other locations in Northwest Indiana, which uh, this isn't quite as exciting for you probably, but uh, good morning to, uh, to Cedar Lake. It was great to be with you last weekend. And uh, also HP, I'll be with you in a few weeks. So, And I also wanna say uh, good morning to our venue. Here at Crown Point, we've begun this uh, upstairs venue in the student center to help with our capacity and I peeked up there and it's packed out up there and and sad to say they have uh, uh, snacks and refreshments there that you here in the room will not uh, be able to enjoy so um, we are certainly motivating people to go and we know who the food people are because you're up there now uh, this is the diet crowd here today all right, well, let's get into God's Word together, which is our practice here at Bethel Church. We, you know, in our gatherings, we typically will, will pray and sing and, and uh, share some body life stuff and have communion and baptize and do those sorts of things. But we always come to this time where we open God's Word and we submit to it. Uh, we, we believe that God's Word is the uh, sole authority for uh, rule and life and direction in the body of Christ, and so we are very much a uh, believing in, in the inspired Word of God, and we believe that it speaks to us in its proclamation, and that the Holy Spirit takes those truths and applies them to our hearts. And so we very much uh, want that to happen here this morning, and I hope that uh, today is a challenge, a blessing, an encouragement, uh, all of these things together. We are in Romans 15, and if you have a Bible, you can turn there. As you turn there, I'm going to ask you just to think about yourself for a moment uh, and how you would maybe describe yourself. Are you one of these people that's more of a homebody, or maybe on the other end of the spectrum, uh, the bags are packed, let's go? And the homebody people would raise their hands? And the pack bags people, let's go, raise your hands. Okay, all right. This room is about half and half. Uh, most of us probably would describe ourselves somewhere in between that. Like, especially when you haven't been gone for a while, to get to go somewhere is, is an exciting thing. But then after you've been there, it sure feels good to get home again and to sleep in your own bed and to be in your own place and space. Uh, that certainly is, is true. Well, for me, I am, I am definitely, I lean over on the uh, bags are packed, let's go side of things. I love to travel, and I love to uh, explore and enjoy and experience new things in traveling. You know, they call this the wanderlust, if you've heard that phrase before. Some people have that wanderlust. They just, they gotta go, they gotta do, they gotta see. And uh, this is fun. I, I think the experience of different cultures and seeing different places, it ref for me, it refreshes me. 
Uh, even the cultural food experiences, which can be uh, distressing at times. Ask me about goat brain sometime, I'll tell you the story. Uh, so not all of those are great, but the experiencing of different things in travel really is a wonderful thing. This is one reason this pandemic has seriously cramped our style in terms of, uh, of travel. For most people, it has. Uh, for, for the DeWitts, now going to Costco feels like an adventure to us. While there, I half expect to run into Rick Steves, uh, you know, giving advice on, on the Costco travel experience. Uh, that's a big deal. Um, but the pandemic has certainly suppressed that and made it, uh, made it difficult. I love to travel. Some of my favorite traveling experiences have actually been with many of you. Over the years, we have done many Israel trips and, and uh, Steps of Paul and, and Egypt and various places where we've studied biblical history. And uh, I, I share this because my, other than my wife Jennifer, my favorite travel companion for these trips uh, has, has been Dr. Wilbur Williams. And if you saw my First Bethelonians uh, two weeks ago that I sent out to you, I shared with you the, the very sad news for, for me and all who knew Dr. Williams that he, uh, that he died two weeks ago. And I can't tell you enough about uh, this man. He was a longtime professor, Old Testament professor. Uh, I think we have a picture of him, if you wouldn't mind putting that up there. That's me and him in Corinth, in the ruins of Corinth. What a dear, godly man. He was an archaeologist. I, could, I, I love telling the story of going to the Israeli Museum in Jerusalem with Dr. Williams. And for him, uh, you know, he was on so many digs over the years, and there's all these things under glass, you know, and he'd be like, yeah, we found that back in 71, and we found that thing over there back in 76. And it just, uh, it's, you know, it's like being with Indiana Jones or something, uh, traveling with him. This is the actual guy uh, that, that did it. Um, and on top of all of that, he was perhaps the godliest man that I have ever known. When I think about Christ's likeness, Dr. Williams was as close to that as anybody that I can remember in my, in my life. He was so giving, he was so uh, generous. Uh, and, you know, I, I was with him a lot. Uh, we had a very special relationship. He called me his son, his son in the faith, you know. He was convinced I, I'm the, I was going to be the next Billy Graham. We all need people that believe in us like that, don't we? He's been sadly disappointed in that respect, I'm afraid. But I truly love Dr. Williams. If you attended our wedding, he spoke at our wedding. That's the kind of man that he was in, in my life. And... When I think about him, you know, there's one of the things that you learn about when you travel with people. You don't really know people till you travel with them. Uh, because, you know, here we all have our support structures and our sort of routines and all of that. But when you, when you go on these trips and you travel with people, you really get to know them. Because, you know, you're out of your comfort zone, uh, you're, you're, you're tired, you're experiencing different things, and so often the, the real us comes out in, in times like traveling. And in Dr. Williams' case, what came out was a very beautiful person. Even at his, at his you know, in his, he was older, uh, obviously, 
But his energy, his zeal for God, his love for people, that's what, that's what came out, and that's what I will always remember about him. And I share that with, him, with you just because I love you and I loved him and I wanna share about Dr. Williams with you, but I also share it because it's a, a, a very appropriate introduction to our, our text today. Because today, we are going to, in a sense, go on a trip with the Apostle Paul. At least the itinerary of a trip with the Apostle Paul. And just like when you travel with people, you come to learn their priorities and things that are, matter to them, when we look at what Paul planned to do in his travel itinerary, we're going to see the measure of the man. We're going to see the heart that he had. And essentially we wanna hold up his heart and to, and to look in the mirror and to look at our heart and to say, okay, what needs to change? Because obviously the Apostle Paul, humanly speaking, one of the greatest Christians that has ever lived, we wanna be like him because he wanted to be like Jesus. And so we see personally now in the, in the travel plans what Paul was all about. Okay, so listen now, and it's a longer section, so I'm gonna take it in, in pieces here rather than read the whole thing at once. I'm beginning now in verse uh, 22, and he's gonna explain to the Romans why he hasn't been to Rome yet. And, and side note, I love these sections in the letters of Paul because the other stuff's kind of like, you know, it, theology, we love that too, don't get me wrong, but you get to these, it's very personal. It kind of feels like normal, practical life, and you'll get a sense of that. Look at verse 22. This is the reason why I, I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you. We'll pause there. Paul says, there's no longer any work for me to do here. Now that can sound a little bit like, really? Are you saying that every person in Asia Minor is now a Christian and there's no more missionary work to do? And obviously the answer to that is, is no, any more than we would say that here in Northwest Indiana, that everybody who lives in Northwest Indiana has, is a follower of Jesus, so now the church has nothing more to do. You have to understand what Paul's calling was. He was called as an apostle to the Gentiles and he was called to a kind of trailblazing, sort of edge of, uh, edge of society, kind of working on the edges and on the fringes to expand the gospel to places that had not yet heard the name, of, uh, the name of Jesus. And so he writes from Corinth, this major city, to the Romans, and he says, you know, here in Greece, I have largely finished my calling. I have established works, churches, in every major urban uh, uh, location, and that was his mission. Establish churches, let those churches slowly permeate into the uh, urban and into the suburban and into the countryside, and Paul's, he's moving on. And so he looks around in, in Greece, he says, you know what, I don't really see anywhere else that I need to go, and now his heart and his eyes turn westward, turn towards Rome. And in this passage, he has his eye on three different cities, and each of them have, have a different purpose for him. And the three cities are Jerusalem, Rome, and the country of Spain. Jerusalem, Rome, Spain. That sounds like a great trip, doesn't it? My bags are packed, I'm ready to roll. I'd love to go take all of us there and have a great experience, maybe someday uh, we will. But you gotta realize that for Paul, you know, Paul is not a tourist. He's not writing to Rome going, I can't wait to see the Colosseum. 
I want, I want to see the, 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 you know, the, uh, the sights in Rome. No. He's going there because he wants to advance the gospel. He wants to meet these Christians. And he uh, has a different purpose in each one of these stops. So he says, first of all, I'm going to Jerusalem. Okay, I'm going to Jerusalem. Look with me back to the text. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in their material blessings. Okay, we'll pause there. Let's talk about Jerusalem, okay? Let's talk about Jerusalem. And what Paul is is sharing here is that word had come to Paul that the saints, the Christians back in Jerusalem were experiencing a tremendous time of famine and uh, financial destitution. And we don't know why this was. It might have been the weather. Uh, It could have been the unintended consequence of the communal living described in Acts 2. We don't know, but there was a great material need there in, uh, in Jerusalem. And we see here that Paul wants to meet that material need, but he has another thing in mind, and it's a theme that he's been developing, really, the whole book, essentially, and that is ethnic harmony. Remember, Romans is written to a largely ethnically divided church. You had the Gentile Christians there in Rome. You had the Jewish Christians there in Rome. We've heard this over and over and over again and how they were not loving each other. They were sectarian. They were judging each other. They thought they were better than the others, etc., etc. And so Rome, Romans is, is largely written to try to get these two ethnicities to get along and to love each other within the church. And so now he shares with them this, uh, this story, and he wants them to know, hey, listen, the Gentile Christians in Greece heard about the Jewish Christians needing some support, and they have collected an offering. And in this, you kind of hear Paul going, hint, hint, Roman church, that the Grecian Gent- Gentile Christians love The Jewish Christians in Jerusalem so much, they're not only praying for them, they are giving them money. And let's just be honest, there's a lot of ways to say I love you, but few are better than cold, hard cash. Every Christmas we say amen to that. And so you you see in this that Paul is is giving them, in a sense, a, a, a model to inspire them in the way that they should themselves conduct themselves within their church by sharing about this offering. You know, Christian charity to the poor is a hallmark of God's people from the beginning. You can go back in Acts and Acts 6, for example, and and right away in the church, they're providing, for example, for the widows there. And down through the story of the church, God's people have always had a charitable disposition towards those who are financially uh, impoverished. Peter, James, and John, when they commissioned Paul, they told him this, this is Galatians 2. They asked us to remember the poor. And Paul writes, the very thing I was eager to do. So compassion for the financial and material needs 
of other people, especially those within the Christian community. I mean, we, we care about all needs, but especially within the household of faith is a sign of actual Christian love. I mean, James, James tells the story of, you know, if you hear a need and you close your heart, you know, like, what does that say about you? And so we celebrate here an example, and I, I put this out here just as something to inspire us and to remember that part of our calling is to, is to remember the poor and to be charitable towards people in their times of need. Now here at Bethel Church, we in many ways act as a kind of gateway for contributing to the poor uh, for, for you. Because I would say many of you, you know, you may know people not so well to do, but you, maybe you don't know people that are on the edge of destitution. You're like, you wouldn't even know uh, who to give that to. But by giving to the church, and in particular the Benevolent Fund, here at Bethel Church, you are fulfilling this, this call. You are giving to those who are in need. You don't, you don't even know their names. You don't necessarily know where it goes. But the church can be a kind of gateway for you to give to the poor. And I'm so glad to tell you that, that we, we, that is an ongoing ministry of our church. I'm thankful for Stephanie Ward who gives direction to our benevolent ministry. And uh, you know, I, I, I come here uh, nights and there's all these cars and all these people and, I, and I'll say, what's going on? And they'll say, it's NIPSCO night. You may not realize we run nights where people in the community who can't pay their NIPSCO bill, they come here, we work with them, we help to meet that monthly need as one example of our efforts in the community to, uh, to be charitable uh, you know, to, to the poor. And it's not just locally here, but when you give to the general fund and when you give even to the missions fund, you are also giving to the global poor. Our missions ministry here is actively uh, resourcing agencies around the world who are specifically meeting the needs of, of the poor, and we, we, we wanna share the gospel, for sure, right? But there is an aspect of loving people that they, they, they can't hear you over their stomach growling. And so by, by meeting the physical need, we build a bridge and are able to share the spiritual need. Because more than bread and water, what people need is they need the Lord. They need the Lord. And so we primarily do that through agencies that work in these regions and uh, we can resource them and we're happy to do so. And that's kind of the question that comes up in the text. Are we happy to do so? How important is joy in financial giving? When it comes to financial giving, is it something that we have to do? Or is it something that we want to do? And Paul highlights both aspects of this. Go look at verse 27. Again, he's talking about the, the Grecian Christians. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought, see that word? That's an obligation. They ought also to be service to them in material blessings. He says they owe it to them. They owe it to them. I mean, is this like, you know, spiritual taxation? What's going on here? Well, Paul points out the story of the gospel. Where did the gospel begin? It began in Jerusalem. Amongst whom did it begin? It began with the, with, with the Jewish people there on the day of Pentecost. The Gentiles 
have been grafted in. We saw that in Romans, okay? If you're a Gentile Christian here today like I am, I have been grafted into a tree, but the roots of that tree are solidly in the, the story in, in, in within the Jewish uh, Christians. And so that nourishment of the Gentiles spiritually, Paul says, means that these Gentiles grafted in have an obligation to nourish them back materially. Spiritual blessing, material response. It was an obligation. But notice this is not the whole story. Look at verse 26. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased. Do you see that? Pleased to make some contribution for the poor. Verse 27, for they were pleased to do it. Wait a second. I thought you were saying they were obligated to do it. Well, they were. But you're telling me that they were pleased to do it. They were. Wait a second, I don't like to, it's gotta be one or the other. Like, cause you know, tax day, is the worst day of the year, and I run and I put that money in the mailbox and uh, I growl the whole time, why? Because I'm obligated to do it. I've never once skipped happily to the mailbox to mail my tax money in. And here you're saying that they're, they're pleased to do it. I mean, which is it? And this is the thing about all Christian giving. It's both, and it needs to be both. There is an obligation to this, but there is also a tremendous opportunity and a blessing to it. Pastor Steve, are you saying that we must financially give to God? I, yes, yes. If you're not giving to God, are you disobeying? I would say yes, you are. And I say that gently, but you can see it right here in many other places. Read through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 for a long exposition about how and why God's people respond to spiritual blessing with material generosity. But it's the pleasure side here that I really want to focus on uh, because Paul highlights it twice. They were happy to do it. They were excited to do it. And why is that? Because they valued the spiritual blessing of the gospel so much. And this is where, you know, money and, and spirituality, they, they flow together. Jesus said that. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the, the reverse is true. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. And we come to find out that money and, 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 and heart, they, they fly together, okay? They fly together. That's why they say if you want to know where you're, you know, what you really love, look at your checkbook back when people use checkbooks. <laughs> Look at your online bank statement, and it'll display the, the true priorities of our life because money and heart always, always go together. But these Grecian Christians give us an example because they were so delighted in the spiritual blessing of the gospel, we could even say it this way, they so valued the spiritual blessing of the gospel that that superseded the, the joy that they had in holding on to the money. They were pleased to give it. And friends, this is the way it always goes, right? Holding on to money has a certain joy to it, doesn't it? How do you feel when you find that $20 bill in the, in the pant pocket? You didn't realize it was there. It was like, oh, it's a great day. 
What's your favorite day? Payday. Holding on to money has a certain joy to it. The only way that you would give up that joy is if you were, had more joy in something else. And spiritually, as a Christian, what greater joy do we have than to know God through his son, Jesus Christ? To have our sins forgiven, to have eternal life, to have Jesus, to have the Holy Spirit, to have the church and one another. I mean, this is... In, in terms of like, okay, compare that to the holding on of money to, the, to, the, to that treasure, that's so much better. And that's what loosens up the pocketbook for God's people. And it was happening right here in the first century. The Grecian Jews, they were treasuring what they had. They loved that. Uh, they recognized we wouldn't have this if it wasn't for Jerusalem. Let's take up a collection and let's give to our brothers and sisters who are in need in Jerusalem. Look at all that they have provided to us. So when giving to God is without happiness, it indicates our hearts are not treasuring the spiritual blessing of salvation. But as the spiritual treasuring of salvation elevates, the joy in giving financial treasure to God's work is elevated as well. So they owed it to Jerusalem, but they were pleased to do it as well. To quote one local fast food restaurant, it was their pleasure. <laughs> you know, in the, back in the olden days when we used to pass an offering plate, perhaps that's a good habit we could have gotten into if you gave by the offering plate. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. And indeed it must be. This is what honors God. Here's 2 Corinthians 9. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The Greek word, we get the English word hilarity from it. Now that would be an offering in a church if people were just busting up with joy during the offering. Or this morning when we said, we're gonna have our offering now, if everybody just burst out cheering, favorite part of the service. I didn't hear one of you do it. I'm sure the venue folks were doing it, but <laughs> not here in the room. To be glad. God loves cheerful giving because the gladness in giving reveals a gladness in God and a greater gladness in God than in the gladness in holding on to money, which provides its own smaller level of gladness. And we only give away to something we treasure more than money. You know, over the years we've talked about this as oblatunity, I don't have time to get into that, but obligation, opportunity, mash it together, oblatunity, it's a made up word, it's one of my favorites. We have to do it, yes, but we want to do it. We want to do it. So I wonder, what would Paul say about the generosity culture of our church? How would he evaluate not the Grecian Christians, but the, the Northwest Indiana Christians? What would he say, perhaps individually, about your giving to the poor or to God's work, Christian ministry, missionaries, whatever? 
would Paul write, oh, the Bethelonians, they were pleased to give. And if not, let's strive for that, okay? Strive for that culturally within our congregation. And let's ask God to increase our treasuring of what we have spiritually in Christ so that our giving feels less like an obligation and more like the most exciting opportunity that we have because it is, okay? It is. So first stop on the itinerary, Jerusalem. Second stop, let's move on. We're working through the itinerary now. And it's the exciting city of Rome. Look what he says in verse 24. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Rome, what a city, Rome the most dominant city in the world for a thousand years. All roads lead there, maybe you've heard that, to Rome. If you think about Paul, his, his strategy is to, is to spread the gospel by impacting large, culturally influential metropolitan areas. And you know what, Ephesus, awesome. Corinth, great. But Rome, I mean, Rome is the, is the big dog. Rome is the capital of the world. He had never been there, but again, Paul was no tourist. He didn't want to see the sights. He wanted to see the saints. I had fun writing that sentence. <laughs> he didn't want to see the sights. He wanted to see the saints. And while there, he has two priorities. Notice the first one is fellowship. He says, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. And isn't that one of the I, it's one of the best things about being a Christian, in my opinion, is that I get to be a Christian with other Christians. And there is a thing that we have, a spiritual union that we have with other Christians that allows for these times together to be incredibly pleasurable and to be deeply meaningful and wonderful. I mean, have you ever been on a trip maybe somewhere and you're at the beach or at the park, you're at the hotel or whatever, and you discover this, this other person or family that they're Christians too. They pray before they, you know, they eat or something. You're like, hey, are you Christians? We are. And all of a sudden, what happens? Yay! We, you know, we're like you know, sending Christmas cards to each other. We have this, there's a bond, there's a thing that we have with other Christians. And Paul here, he's never met these people. Wait till we get to chapter 16 and he starts listing all their names. Okay? And he's never met them, knows tons about them, never met them, but he's there in Corinth. He's like, I can't wait to get to Rome, and I want to spend some time with you. I want to hang out with you. I want to be refreshed by you. This is known as Christian fellowship. Fellowship that is based upon what we share in Christ. It is not, it's, it's, it's not the same sports heroes or the same hobbies. It is who and what we have in Jesus Christ which I would urge us here to talk about that more than we talk about the other things. But that friendship, that, 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 that uh, fellowship is such an important part of what it means to be a Christian. And even the Apostle Paul, you would think of somebody who you know, sort of could be uh, you know, Han Solo or something, uh, Christian, and get by without other Christians. It would be the one who was commissioned by Jesus to be the Apostle, saw Jesus, you know, God took him to heaven, 2 Corinthians. He had a little vision of heaven. You'd think that guy would be like, oh, I don't need people. But even the apostle Paul, even Jesus, 
surrounded himself with people. And these relationships, they are so critical and so important. And frankly, this year, I I have missed so much. It isn't a part of what we're longing for, some normalcy, to be able to, as he says here, to enjoy each other's company for a while. In three weeks, we will have an entire message on Christian affection from Romans 16, 16, and the famous Christian kiss. So stay tuned and get ready to pucker up. His second reason for wanting to go to Rome, though, is that he has his eye beyond Rome to Spain. I'm going to get to Spain in a moment. But he is seeing Rome as as basically a a port that he can go to and for that church to resource him to go to Spain. And so he he says here that I'm I'm hoping to to, uh, have you equip me, outfit me, support me, and send me. And the apostle is not bashful about saying that. Which, if you're an apostle, you can say what you want, I suppose. But that's what he's saying here. And I I just bring this up because as we have opportunity as a church to similarly, with God's workers here and around the world, to equip them, to support them, to to help them, to send them on their way in a a manner befitting the gospel, we should do that. That's what what Rome did. Here's what uh, John writes in 3 John 6. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. And occasionally we have that opportunity here. And when we throw that out there, then y'all jump on it, right? What are we doing? We're, doing, we're like the Romans to, to Paul. And it's a, it's a tremendous opportunity to partner with God's people and to meet practical needs. So let's keep our eye open for those opportunities. Which brings us now to the third stop on the itinerary. Okay, travel partners, are you with me? We started in Jerusalem. Actually, we started in Corinth. Then we go to Jerusalem. Then we go to Rome. And finally, we're going to Spain. Spain, here's what he says. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and be helped on my journey there by you. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Notice, when therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Spain, who wouldn't want to go to Spain? Just for the food, right? That's what he was interested in. He's, uh, you know, he's a, he's a, He's a foodie, and he wants to go check out the the, the Spanish uh, cuisine. Is that what's going on here? No, obviously not. If we go back 2,000 years, and we go back to to Europe, uh, and and, the known world at the time, if you know what I mean by that, what was Spain? Spain was the edge of the world. What is west of Spain? I I probably should have put a map up for some of you that haven't looked at geography in a while, but it's, it's not a hard, difficult answer. What is west of Spain? Ocean, that's right, okay? Teacher in the fourth row here, showing off. There's ocean. There's no further place to go. Spain represented like the edge of the earth. We know the earth is spherical now, am I right with that? Okay. But that was, that was like the edge of the, of the known world. Now, it was civilized. In fact, a couple Roman emperors come from Spain. But in that day, that was like, you know, we might say Timbuktu. Okay? Just that faraway place, it's like the edge, the edge of the known world. And for Paul, who had this call from God to take, you know, to take this 
everywhere that he could and to hear the words of Jesus, go and make disciples of all nations, to think of Spain was an exciting opportunity to go to just the, 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 the edge of the world and to share the gospel there as well. It was as far as you could go. And with that, I'd like to just transition to a few lessons that we learned from Paul's itinerary. And the first one is obvious from Paul's desire to go to Spain. And that is, friends, this is what gospel courage looks like. This is what gospel courage looks like. We see in the Apostle Paul, he's got this holy ambition. We saw this last week in our Mission Sunday. He has this holy ambition to share the gospel with as many people as he can, as far as he can, and that ambition allows him to overcome some of the natural fears that would keep a normal person from doing, going, and saying all the things that Paul did. Why did he do it? He did it for the gospel. It's inspiring. Look at, essentially he says this, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to meet the needs of the church there. Then I'm going to go to Rome. I've never been there, but I can't wait. And then I'm going to go to Spain, edge of the world, and let's see what God does there. And there's this kind of this reckless abandon that he lives with for the sake of the gospel. And this morning I wanna ask you, what, what represents Spain in your life? What's Spain, who's your Spaniard? You know that kind of edgy, scary, not sure if I wanna go there, do that, say that? aspect of your life. God, don't call me to that. Don't ask me to reach out to that person. What's Spain in your life? Who's your Spaniard? We see the Apostle Paul here with an incredible courage to go on a dangerous journey, a very uncertain journey, to get away from the support structures of Jerusalem, Asia Minor, even Rome. Nobody knows him there. He doesn't know anybody there. But he says twice, I'm going to Spain. That's where I want to go. And it is this life of faith that propels God's people and must propel us into the uncomfortable and into the uncertain and into the edge of our comfort zones because that, that's where uh, that's where the most exciting gospel ministry is happening, is out there on the edges and on the fringes, not in the comfortable and the status quo and the normal. Who or what might God be calling you to go, to reach out, to do the uncomfortable or even the dangerous in Jesus' name? You know, it was this same heart that sent David Livingston into Africa for the sake of the gospel. It was the same courage that, that propelled Jim Elliott and the other four men uh, to reach out to the Wadani uh, Indians in Ecuador. And they all were speared to death, if you know that story. But they had tremendous courage for the sake of the gospel. So many examples of this. And here I am preaching to a Midwest church in a comfortable middle-class environment where there probably isn't very much scary in your life at all. And it would be so easy for us to just sort of sit, soak, die and go to heaven. And to think, that's all God's calling me to. 
It'd be so easy for us as a church to look at where we are right now as a congregation, who we've reached, the places that we're in, and to say, pretty good. Let's just sort of like go into neutral now and let's just wait for Jesus to come. And then you read about Paul. Probably comfy there in Corinth. Could have had a real comfortable situation in Jerusalem. Even Rome would have been all right. He's like, I'm going to Spain. I'm going to Spain, I need your help, I need your support, but that's where I'm going. And I want us to feel the challenge of the example of the Apostle Paul this morning and to allow it to pull us out of our comfort zones as a congregation and even as individuals and to honestly ask the question, God, what would you have me to do? What's the edgy, uncomfortable, slightly or actually dangerous thing that for your sake, you want me to do. And you know what, I don't know the answer for you. I don't, but I'm asking you today to ask God to give you the courage to go there and to do it. And isn't it kind of exciting? Like, status quo's boring, isn't it? Okay, you homebodies are like, I like status quo. No, that's boring. Anybody can do that. I'd rather be out there on the edges where exciting ministry takes place. Let's not be content. It's the first sign of a dying church. Where's our Spain? Who's our Spaniard? Second lesson we learn here is that we make our plans, but God directs our steps. Now let me just tell you the story here. So Paul's in Corinth, he writes to the Romans, he says, I think I'm done here. And I'm gonna swing by Jerusalem and then I'm coming to see you as I go on my way uh, to Spain. So Paul has a plan in mind. Corinth to Jerusalem, Jerusalem to Rome, Rome to Spain. Very simple, right? Everything should just work like clockwork. What actually happened? Paul takes the offering to, uh, to Jerusalem. He arrives in Jerusalem, he goes to the temple to offer some worship. And while he's there, the mob sees him and says, this is the guy that's, he's preaching to the Gentiles. There's a mob scene. They're about to rip Paul uh, limb from limb. The, the Roman uh, uh, guards come and they literally save his life from the mob. They carry him up the stairs on their shoulders and he gets to the top of the stairs. He says, I'd like to address the mob, okay? Talk about courage. And so he shares his testimony with them. He gets to the place where God sent me to the Gentiles and the mob goes crazy. And so the Romans take him in, they're about to uh, flog him and he says, can you flog a Roman citizen? And they're like, oh, he's a Roman citizen, right? And uh, long story short, the mob is trying to assassinate Paul. And there's a plot, a whole bunch of guys said, we're not gonna eat until that guy's dead. And so, his nephew hears the story and they tell the, the Roman uh, leadership and in the night they have like hundreds of Roman soldiers that escort Paul from Jerusalem all the way to Caesarea on the Mediterranean Sea. And he gets there, Paul's probably like, hey, I'm on my way to Rome. He sits in a prison for two years. Okay, two years. Not on the itinerary, not on the itinerary. Well, he's there, he shares the gospel with Felix, shares the gospel with Festus, but he's not getting to Rome. And so, what does he do? As a Roman citizen, he had the right to appeal to Caesar. And that's what he does. And they say, to Caesar you appeal, to Caesar you will go. And so they assign him to a, uh, 
to a, 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 a Roman centurion, and they get in a boat, and they begin to meander their way to Rome. Maybe he thinks to himself, finally I'm getting to Rome. Well, out in the Mediterranean Sea, what happens? Terrible storm comes up. They don't see the light of day for days. They're throwing every, all the cargo off the ship. Eventually, they're starving. There's hardly any food. And eventually, they think, we're all going to die. And uh, God gives them a vision. They're not going to die. Nobody's going to die here. And they shipwreck on Malta. So maybe Paul thinks, hey, great, okay, I'm kind of, kind of close to Rome here. You know, the plan's eventually going to work. They gather some sticks and all of that. He's bitten by a poisonous viper. All the natives step back and go, this guy's about to die. He doesn't die. Now they start worshiping him like he's a god. They share the gospel there in Malta. God does amazing things. Eventually, they make their way to Rome. We're now at the end of the book of Acts. They get to Rome, and he's probably like, finally, I'm in Rome, and I'm going to head on to Spain. He's in prison for two more years. House arrest. And that's how the book of Acts ends. That's all we know from actual uh, biblical narrative, what happened to Paul. So I asked the question, did it happen the way that he expected? Did he get to Rome? He did. Eventually, he got to Rome. The way that he expected, no, not at all. My point is this, isn't this the way things go in life? Is this not the life that you are living today? You know, we make our plans. I'm going to Rome. And maybe Rome, when we're making our plans, it's sort of this ideal, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to college and I'm gonna get a high-paying job and I'm gonna marry a supermodel and I'm gonna, you know, and I'm gonna uh, birth, you know, three Nobel Prize winners and then I'm gonna buy an island in the Caribbean. You know, that's the plan. Never happens that way, does it? And life rarely, if ever, happens the way that we expect it. What happens in life? Well, I'm going to do this. And then you get divorced. And then you lose your job. And then you have a health crisis. Or your child has a health crisis. And then your dad dies. Life doesn't happen the way that we expect, does it? I've seen this posted on Facebook many times. I throw it up there because I look at it and I go, that is so true. Have you seen this little post on Facebook? Here's, here's your plan, right? And what actually happens in life? The reality. Up and down and trials and things and all this stuff. There's a lot of truth to that. And that was Paul. Listen, he writes Romans in 57 AD. He says, I'm coming to see you. He doesn't get to Rome for three years, and most of the time, he's sitting in a prison. Did he make it to Spain? Scripture doesn't tell us whether he made it to Spain. There's one early church father that suggests that he, he did. But here's the kicker. He so much wants to go to Rome in 57 AD, and as early as 64 AD, he is martyred in Rome. That wasn't on the itinerary. I'm gonna to go to Rome and then I'm gonna die. 
And I just say this to us because we live in a day where we make our plans, you know, we've got our, our phones and our dates and our calendars and our this and our that, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that, and then this is gonna happen, and these, we make our plans. We have these expectations of the way that life is going to be. And then these things happen in life. And then we die. And death is never on the itinerary. And I just say we need to learn from the Apostle Paul here. Dream big. I urge us as a church, and I urge you, to dream massively, especially young people here. I think so many of you, you dream too small. You dream about, you know, the American dream. I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna buy that, and then I'm gonna settle down, and now is the time to dream crazy dreams. Dream big, be ambitious, especially spiritually ambitious. Make your plans. But all of us must hold our plans with an open hand because we don't know what lies around the corner. No doubt some of you in this room right now, some of you online, this week represented unexpected turns of events in your life. And we can get so discouraged and to think, God doesn't love me, God's not working in my life, I must be out of God's will, or something like that. But then we look at the apostle Paul, and we see the story of his life. And it reminds us that we're not in control, are we? That God is in control. And what does he tell us? He says this, all things work together for good for those who love God called according to his purpose. He says this, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. He says this, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We have plans. God gives us promises. And those promises are his presence and his provisions for us in the ups and downs, in the mountaintops and in the valleys, in the painful trials of life, he will always be with us, even to the end of the age. So how do, we, how do we do it? How do we make it? We do so by faith, not by plans and not by sight, by faith, knowing that we have a travel companion with us. And this travel companion loves us is ever interceding to the Father for us and provides us with everything we actually need in every step of the way. And his name is Jesus Christ. And so I urge you to dream big, make your plans, pack your bags, and buckle up on this great gospel adventure of life.